0: Is the IDF acting legally and ethically in Gaza? We at the Times of Israel recently held an hour-long webinar on this topic for our Times of Israel community with Professor Amichai Cohen of the Israel Democracy Institute. Cohen is a recognized expert in the international law of armed conflict, national security law, and civil-military relations. International pressure is building on Israel to lessen the impact on Palestinian civilians while the IDF prosecutes this war against Hamas in all of Gaza. During this webinar, I, Amanda borchel Dan asked Cohen about the legal legitimacy of Israel's right to self-defense, the international bodies that determine laws of warfare, and how to try Hamas for international war crimes. It's a long and fascinating discussion as we ask Professor Amichai Cohen, what matters now?
1: You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines, massacre in Gaza, genocide perpetrated by Hamas, no by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning. Without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise and it helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So, educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts.
0: Community, Thank you for joining me, Deputy Editor Amanda Borchel-Dan, for another community webinar. This week we are going to talk about the ethics of war. Is the IDF, in fact, acting ethically and responsibly within Gaza? There's a lot to discuss, and here with me is Professor Amichai Cohen of the Israel Democracy Institute. Amichai is an expert in international law of armed conflict, and we have a lot to discuss here. A lot of it is a little lost. Upsided, however, because in fact, the international law of armed conflict is for states. It's an institutional way of dealing with warfare and things of that nature. And here in our conflict, of course, it's one state versus a terrorist organization. So first of all, Amichai, can you just talk about the idea of why this international law of armed conflict even was created?
2: So, international law of armed conflict is actually one of the oldest parts of, of international law. It's uh, four or five hundred years long and based on the ideas of chivalry that came from the Middle Ages. Um, modern law of armed conflict is based on, on several justifications. The first, of course, and I think we'll return to it in a minute, is the moral one. But even if putting aside the moral one, there are other justifications. One of them, of course, and it's especially relevant to states, is the reciprocal one. The idea that if one state will behave in a more humane way, say, towards the prisoners of war of the other state, then the other state might behave the same way towards the prisoners of war of of this state. However, uh, the laws of armed conflict are not based only on... On reciprocity, and that's why it's also relevant to when a state is fighting uh, an organization. Uh, For example, the laws of armed conflict are also based on the idea of control. So the commanders needing to control their own soldiers, say from uh, pillaging uh, a city, or from taking private prisoners of war, as was the custom in the Middle Ages, right, where every soldier took his own prisoner um, uh, of of war. So it's also based on the idea of preserving public support for war. The public in a democratic state, uh, and especially in modern times, the international community, uh, needs to see that the army is conducting itself in a way which puts limits on the use of 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 force during war. Certain actions, certain activities, especially with, re- with regards to civilians, undermine the entire legitimacy of the of the campaign. Uh, The laws of war in their, or or the laws of armed conflict in their totality, apply indeed, as you mentioned, to the uh, conflicts between two states or two or more states. That's when the entire uh, area of the conduct of of hostility law applies. However, uh, certain parts, and especially those dealing with protection of civilians, apply also to a state which is in a conflict with a terrorist organization. Now, I want to stress something about the relationship between a state and a terrorist organization, the legal relationship, in, in, in uh, the legal responsibility. Clearly, the terrorist organization or the non-state actor, in this case the Hamas, is also subject to the international laws of armed conflict. The point is we have no expectation, zero expectation that it will actually follow the, the, uh, the, the, the laws of non-conflict. We have an expectation from the state of Israel, and here lies the asymmetry, the legal asymmetry between the, the parties. As I said before, the reason Israel is a, a modern... Uh, democracies involved in such conflict with non-state actors still abide by the laws of war and accept them as 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 an obligation. Is because the reasons for following it are not necessarily the question of reciprocity. It's the the moral issue, right? The civilians of the other party are still civilians, whether they are controlled by a state or have been hijacked by a terrorist organization. Um, The internal reasons of the commanders controlling their own army, the need to preserve international support for their action, and international support is based a lot on the idea. And I think this is one of the reasons we're having this conversation, is because there is an issue whether Israel... Is able to preserve this international support. And it's important for Israel to show that it's actually uh, following the, the international law of armed conflict uh, during this uh, current conflict in order to preserve support. One last point, and it's we have to be careful who we speak about when we speak about international law. A lot of the institutions, uh, international institutions, are political institutions are not legal institutions. The question of whether Israel is following, or whether a country, a state, is following in the national law, is not decided necessarily by the General Assembly of the United Nations. Uh, what Israel is looking for is the legitimacy by its Western allies, the countries, uh, the nations with which Israel has. A common set of values uh, that they will support Israel's uh, uh, campaign and also support the claim that Israel is abiding by international law.
0: Okay, so as we've made clear, we're going to be discussing Israel and the international law of armed conflict, not necessarily Hamas. Maybe towards the end, we'll talk about some of the Hamas uh, atrocities and uh, against humans, essentially. But let's turn right now a little bit more to what you were just talking about, uh, the legitimacy that Israel really gathered very quickly after the October 7th massacre. Israel felt very strongly that it had, as you said, these Western nations, these allies backing to, yes, begin an offensive into Gaza, not necessarily a ground offensive. And as we know, Israel began with airstrikes. So how, is there some kind of rubric? Is there some kind of check the box to say, this happened to you? Yes, you may go to war.
2: Is there some checklist? Uh, Yes, there is. But I want to backtrack a bit uh, in response to your question. So the the first appearance of international law uh, in this current conflict was a unique one, in which Israel found itself in a rare position of being the victim. In, uh, and uh, international law, I think, assisted states, uh, the public opinion around the world, to digest the atrocities. That happen. Because it's very difficult to understand you know, the things that happen. And international law in this case provides states and public opinions a way of thinking about the atrocities in terms of defining them as crimes against humanity, right? So you can compare them to things that happen, or genocide, right? You can compare them to things that happened in other places in the past, to Jews, to non-Jews in Rwanda. Uh, uh, Bosnia, uh, uh, etc. So the first appearance of international law was uh, allowing the public opinion to digest or think about what happened. The second one, and here I come to your uh, specific question, was the question of Israel's legitimacy and its response. So the, the basic idea is the idea of self-defense. Now, there is a, 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 a legal, formal legal claim here. But once again, because it's a non-state actor, it's not clear that the formal law as it is exactly, Article 51 of the Charter of the United Nations, is relevant. What, it, what is clear is the idea. I think the intuition, uh, universal intuition. That such an attack justifies response a strong response by uh, Israel and that the uh, goal that Israel put um and it's eliminating not the Hamas but eliminating the uh, governmental capabilities of the Hamas is a legitimate one, and that Israel can use force in order to to do it it's important to to that self-defense is not necessarily using the same force that was applied to you. So if 1,200 Israelis and others were killed in the initial terrorist attack, it doesn't mean that Israel is limited in some way to killing only 12... Never mind, we we don't want to go into these. uh, what Israel is supposed to do. It's the elimination of the threat. That's the idea of self-defense. Israel is allowed to use in self-defense the force that will eliminate the threat. And in this sense, Israel can take into account not only the specific attacks of October 7th, but also the 16 years in which Israelis have gone to, to shelters and the current attacks that are still going on. So although Israel is on the offensive just an hour before we started this conversation people in Rishon LeZion and in, in uh, I think in Bat Yam went into shelters and there were people hurt in in, uh, in Ashkelon I think to, just today from missiles so the idea is the elimination of the threat is a legitimate goal by a state and the force that can be used is the force that's required to eliminate the, the threat.
0: The problem, of course, with Hamas, as everyone knows by now, is that there's no Hamas headquarters and that's where everyone is. No, every building, under every building, there is a potential Hamas mini headquarters. All the tunnels are underground and that's where we, we assume that most of the Hamas operatives are popping out to shoot at soldiers all the time, etc., etc. And so the question then becomes the question of what is the IDF's responsibility to the Gazan civilians? And there are, of course, civilians who are innocent, who have nothing to do with Hamas. Gaza is, of course, a police state. They have no real rights or ability to overthrow this government, at least that we've seen so far in these 16 years, of, as you've described. So what is Israel or the IDF's responsibility here?
2: So here we come to the third appearance of, of international law, and it's the international law of, of armed conflict. And um, the, as I said before, uh, Israel is... Uh, Stresses and declares its obligation to the international law of anglo- conflict with regards to its uh, conflict, current conflict with Hamas. And if we try to break it, da- break it down, there are actually three principles that uh, guide the attacking army when attacking uh, in, in areas in which there are m- militants or terrorists and civilians together. The first is distinction. So the attacking party needs to make a distinction between the targets, which are military targets or militants, and civilians. It does not mean that civilians will not be hurt. It means that the attacking party will direct its attacks towards the militants or the the military targets. The second principle is the principle of proportionality. When attacking a military target in which the attacking party knows in advance that civilians are in the vicinity of the, of the target, the attacking party will not attack if uh, in a specific operation, not the general campaign. In the specific operation, uh, the attacking party will not attack if the collateral damage to civilians will be excessive in comparison to the military advantage gained by the attack. So think about, uh, you know, a specific uh, post of the Hamas in which there is a person of the Hamas which stands there and directs uh, traffic or phones and, and gives warning about. And it's... Located within a building in which there are hundreds of civilians. If this person is not or, or eliminating this Hamas militant, which is a legitimate target because he's there and he is warning other Hamas operatives that the IDF is coming. If eliminating him will cause a thousand people, civilians, to die, this seems at first sight, of course, we're not going to details, that this is excessive. On the other hand, if there is a Hamas car moving with Hamas high command in a street and there are people next to it, and shooting at this car might and will cause the death of the Hamas high command and also the death of two or three civilians around it, this is certainly proportional. This is allowed and legitimate. There's no question. The question are the gray areas. We have a lot of gray areas. And the gray areas, the the main problem is that the Hamas has turned the entire Gaza city to a massive human shield. They built their... As you said, the tunnels and they built their headquarters all within uh, the city and under the protection of a million people. What do you do then? And here we come to the third principle, and it's a pre- principle of precaution. Uh, the attacking party, in this case Israel, has to do what it can, uh, what's feasible. Uh, what's reasonable in in an armed conflict, in order to differentiate between the civilians and the militants and cause damage only to the militants. For example, warning, the main move that began the ground offensive of Israel, and it was highly criticized, but I said time and again, this is the most humanitarian thing that Israel could have done, is the evacuation of the civilian population from Gaza City. Whatever the suffering that was caused by this evacuation, we can go later if you want into the details of evacuation, but whatever suffering that was caused by this evacuation is minuscule, is nothing uh, in comparison to what would have happened if Israel uh, had attacked when the civilians were still in the city, the numbers we are talking about now would have been nothing in comparison to to the the number we we could have seen if the civilians were not evacuated. So the main humanitarian move, and I truly believe this was was a, a fulfillment of the obligation, there was nothing else Israel could have done, was the evacuation of civilians. And we saw that the Hamas tried to avoid, to prevent this evacuation. They shot at, their, at the Palestinians trying to evacuate. Because that's their tactic, is they want the civilians to remain in the city in order to provide them with protection. So the third principle, as I said, is precaution. So distinction Proportionality, precautions, these are the principles that should guide any attacking party, and Israel included, uh, when, uh, when attacking an area in which there are militants and civilians together.
0: Okay, I want to go back to the number two, to proportionality. And, of course, you gave two different examples. One of a few people who would be killed through a, a car a bombing or a car shooting, and the other where a thousand people would be killed. And I just wonder... A thousand civilians. A thousand civilians, correct. And I wonder in the rubric of international armed warfare law, is there any kind of ratio? Because right now we're hearing that the ratio of civilians versus terrorists dead is two civilians to one terrorist. And is that acceptable in the rubric of international law?
2: So, there were times in which Western, certain Western armies, for example, the US Army, did make public its ratio. The ratio, by the way, in certain conflicts, it depends when. Sometimes it was one to one, and it went up in Iraq certain times to one to five. So, five civilian casualties. However, the um, armies stopped doing it. In the sense that what came out of putting out the ratio was that uh, army commanders said, "Okay, if we're under the ratio, then we're okay, right? It's legit because we're under the ratio." This is inco- an incorrect way. The army should do the attacking army should do whatever it can it can in order to lessen civilian uh, casualties. That's that's the main requirement. It's not a question of numbers. Putting it in in numbers um, is wrong, both because it's the wrong way to think about it and because it absolves the commanders of responsibility. The responsibility of a commander is to do whatever he can in order to minimize civilian casualties. The numbers are just a reflection. If an enormous number of civilians are killed, then it turns out that the commander could have done more. In the history of international criminal law, where commanders were sometimes put on trial on violations of international law, there is not even one case in which a commander could show that He did whatever he can to lessen, to minimize the civilian casualties, and still he was convicted of a violation because the numbers were too high. It's not the way it works. The way it works is a procedure, and the procedure is is something that is uh, discussed and decided upon much before the war on which are the uh, uh, targets that should be attacked so that the target bank, right? And what happens if civilians are around and a pilot sees that he is about to attack a target and suddenly there are civilians around, what is he supposed to do? It's about the procedure, the way to perceive it. And the last point is that, proportionality in armed conflict is measured by a specific attack not the entire campaign the question is not the entire campaign the question is a specific operation how many civilian what is the number of civilian casualties in a specific operation the entire campaign might be uh, reflecting the fact that maybe a state did not pay enough attention to civilians but if if you want to ask the question whether it was legal or illegal it's an a, about it's about a specific operation
0: that's really interesting actually and every operation has his own commander of course and what you're describing is essentially preparation that needs to be uh, well grounded everyone needs to be entrenched with what are the rules what, how can you play this? out and we in Israel like to at least perceive of ourselves of having a very, very moral army. And I wonder, slightly off topic, if there's anything in the Jewish tradition that influences how we in Israel teach our young commanders, our young captains, our young lieutenants how to uphold the the laws of armed warfare.
2: So I'll say uh, uh, three things about uh, Jewish tradition. First is that Jewish tradition, as opposed to other Western countries, lacks a 2,000 2000 year of history of warfare in the middle, in which Jews had no army. It's not that Jews did not fight, but they fought in armies that were not Jewish. So since uh, Bar Kochva, I think for almost 2,000 years, we had. The second is the history of Zionism. And the history of Zionism uh, was uh, included um, respect for the limits on, for, on force, on the use of force from, from its inception. Uh, it's grounded not necessarily on Jewish tradition, but on Jewish experience. So, the idea of Jews that even if you have force, because they were the oppressed in many cases in the past, the idea that force should be used with care and with limits. So, the idea of the purity of the arms is is the very basic idea in in Zionist tradition. And I think it's based on the the Jewish experience. And third, certainly, the idea of human dignity is one of the pillars. Of Jewish tradition and the respect for a person that was created by God and and in the shadow of, of God all humans were created certainly has an effect on the way Israel conducts itself.
0: The surge in anti-Semitism since the October 7th attacks has changed the Jewish community's relationship with a slew of social and political issues. In the newest episode of The Glue, Jewish Federations of North America President and CEO Eric Fingerhut talks to Congressman Richie Torres, who has proved to be a pro-Israel bridge builder, about everything from DEI to social media. Their conversation is fascinating. Listen to it and subscribe to The Glue with Eric Fingerhut wherever you get your podcasts. War is not a pretty thing, and it's definitely not a pretty thing to talk about. And so the numbers we're hearing, uh, some 15,000, of course, are coming through the Hamas medical... uh, Industry, How do you feel that these numbers are affecting Israelis? Because around the world, people are saying, 15,000, where will it stop? And should these numbers actually influence the decision-making of the army?
2: So, the question you asked is combined of... A legal question and an ethical, political, moral, what have you, uh, question. But I'll try to differentiate a bit. So, as you said, first of all, we don't know the exact numbers and the numbers that come out. Specifically because the Hamas, even if we believe the numbers, the Hamas refuses to differentiate. In these numbers, between militants and uh, terrorists and civilians. So... You said that there are claims that it's a two-to-one ratio, but actually we don't know enough. Even when we speak about children, the numbers are not clear because in order to understand, so what is the definition of a child, right? So the Hamas does not follow the law that uh, children under the age of eighteen should not be enlisted to the army. This is Israel follows this, but I, once so we we have to understand what what the numbers are are here before we we make a decision. Second, as I said, legally, uh, the question of the cumulative civilian casualties is not the major legal question. The major legal question are the civilian casualties in a specific attack. However, it's clear that a large number of civilian casualties and here, it's not only the civilian casualties, it's also the pictures from Gaza City that's complete, almost completely destroyed or certain parts of it are destroyed. And once again, it, it's justified legally because many of these buildings were used either as military posts or are above tunnels that when you um, destroy the tunnel, then the, 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 the buildings fall. Um Israel understands that I think Israeli leaders and and also large segments of the Israeli population that this has an effect on international support of the Israeli actions. Um, I, I have no way to evaluate whether this is an excessive number once again, I, I, um, what do you compare it to? You don't compare it only to the October seventh attack. It's is it excessive with regards to the sixteen years that came before and to the next sixteen years that Israel is fighting to prevent? Right? So the attacks and the ongoing attacks and the attacks. In the sisters. so how many Israeli civilian casualties once again if you compare the evacuated persons look at the hundreds of thousands of Israelis who are refugees in Israel because of the from the south and from the the north because of the attack having said that and now I'm moving from the legal question to the ethical political moral question certainly uh, this should be taken into... Into account, and it's hard for Israelis now, after the October seventh horrific attacks, to uh, perceive it as a as 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 a limit on on military actions. Especially when there are still more than a hundred kidnapped persons there, you know, and you have to take them out. But everybody understands that there is a limit. I think that there is an understanding of the hardships. At the beginning, there was, there were, I'll give you an example. At the beginnings, there were objections to providing humanitarian assistance. There are still objections, but the main uh, Israeli public supports the policy of, okay, people were evacuated, they need humanitarian assistance to the evacuated person, needs to move. Right. You, you have to provide humanitarian assistance. People need water to drink, etc. So, certainly there is an understanding. But there is also uh, still anger, I think, at the, at the Hamas. And if you look, once again, it's not a legal question, but at the perception that indeed a lot of the Palestinians supported the, the Hamas. Not as a legal issue. It doesn't make the militants or a military target. Of course, not. They are uh, civilians if they didn't participate in, directly participate in the conflict. But feeling sorry, (laughs) empathy towards people who supported the Hamas is difficult now in Israel. And I think it's understandable.
0: At the beginning, we discussed how Israel drew the legitimacy of the war. And a lot of it was because of the support of the Western allies. And if the Western allies are slowly, slowly, such as France, for instance, there was an interesting comment from Macron recently. If they're starting to withdraw their support, is there a state or a chance in which the war will be shut down? There is a body that can shut down the war, is there not?
2: Theoretically, there is one institution, uh, the Security Council of the United Nations, which can decide uh, that, that the war should stop, there should be a ceasefire. And because a decision of the Security Council will only be accepted if the U.S., the U.K. and France agree to it, because they have the veto power then it means that Israel lost the support of the U.S., U.K., and, so all three, and, and France, and this will put Israel suddenly in a difficult situation and will cause Israel to stop, and it will also be a political failure for the government. Because everybody understands that this will mean a fa- political failure of the government, I believe that both Israel and the U.S. and the U.K. and the France will do everything that they can in order not to get to the point in which the U.N. Security Council will uh, 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 decide to order um, the Israel to stop its its attack. There will be some negotiations. And we see that, especially the U.S., there, is, there are... Um, there is an ongoing discussion. There were leaks that Blinken was here, and he warned. And we also see that the ongoing, as we are uh, speaking now, um, the ground offensive is moving towards the southern part of the Gaza Strip, and we can already see that Israel um, is much more precise in the way in the whereabouts it directs its Attacked, and I think it's a result of the understanding. You know that this, okay, in the northern part, Gaza City, there was no other way to fight this war, but because this the Gaza, the entire Gaza City was actually a fortress. But in the south, uh, Israel is more flexible, and is also will will limit the way it attacks and direct it, target it, I think, towards uh, more specific locations.
0: And of course, there's a larger warning system now with this interactive map that the IDF has put out to tell the citizens, the civilians, where to move to. We have a lot of checks and balances within ourselves that are not the external rubric of international warfare. And, of course, some of that can be civilian law, the, the High Court of Justice, for sure, and, and within the army itself. So could you talk about how the army itself is trying to make yes. everything ethical? So,
2: as I said, the main reason for following, or an import, a very important reason, certainly in Israel, for following the limitations that the laws of conflict put on the attacking party are not the external ones. It's internally the professionalism and morality of an institution, an army that does, does not want to behave in a way in which militias, militias behave. It's, it's a professional army, militias don't have rules, armies have rules, ways in which they behave, and an important way, as you said, to enforce this way is a, an elaborate system that was developed in Israel over decades of planning in which lawyers are involved. So before an attack, uh, approval of attacks, not of a specific attack. We're not speaking about a brigade now. There is no lawyers attached to brigades. Nothing that, like that. But
0: They might be in the reserves, though. There might
2: be persons who are lawyers. We have a lot of
0: lawyers. We're Jews.
2: We have a lot of lawyers in Israel, right? So, but um, but no, but um, there are no um, lawyers attached as lawyers to, to brigades. But in the division level and when planning an, an attack, there are lawyers who advise. Who makes the decisions are made by the commanders who advise. So beforehand. There is an ongoing monitoring of events during the events now. There is uh, an institution, an independent task force within the IDF. It's independent, it's not under the chain of command of any specific command. These are reserve persons who uh, monitor specific incidents. Uh, during the situation and gather information, so and look at the issues whether the laws were followed. Whether it's, it's, you have to understand it's it's whether orders were followed because the orders include the requirement to follow international law. So if international law was not followed, it's a violation of a military order. It's uh, th- that's the main problem, and a an, uh, system of investigation afterwards uh, if uh uh there are suspicions or claims that are made uh there is a system, an independent system of investigating s- these suspicions uh, deviations from the laws of our, of un conflict I, w- I want to say something about uh, uh, in general you said that uh, earlier that Israel is a moral, it is a moral, the IDF is a moral army.
0: At least we perceive of ourselves. Uh,
2: sometimes that, yeah. Israel even says Israel's, uh, the IDF is the most moral army in, in the world. Well, my response is that it's not a very high bar to be the <laughs> most. There are violations of the laws of armed conflict in every. Uh, In every military campaign in the history of humanity, there were violations of of the laws of armed conflict. There are always violations because there are hundreds of thousands of soldiers who are operating in very extreme conditions under threat to their lives. The test for an army is whether it's able to respond to these violations and in, in, in appropriate cases investigate even indict, convict if, if needed, if required, and in this way preserve the, the um, uh, obligation to the, to the laws of armed conflict.
0: Do you feel that Israel is under more scrutiny, that the IDF is under more scrutiny than other armies throughout the world?
2: I would put it this way. First,
0: first of all,
2: certainly Israel is involved in a conflict in which it's unique in the sense everything is you know, live-streamed. Both the attacks from the October 7th were literally live-streamed and you know pictures are coming out. Every attack is scrutinized in this sense, certainly. But what I've seen in the past weeks, and I've, I've written a little about it, is that there are attempts to create... A special law for Israel. So, for example, the issue of uh, claiming that the evacuation at the beginning of the campaign was illegal was a claim that was uh, first directed at Israel. So, the idea that the evacuation was somehow illegal because of certain issues, it's um, the claim that the entire campaign is uh, illegitimate because of the cumulative civilian casualties. It's a, it's, putting it as an ethical issue is one uh, uh, way of putting it. But putting it as a legal limitation on the ability of Israel to use self-defense, this was never raised. Before in a in a campaign, of a, to to the best of my knowledge, uh, in 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 any different campaign. So in this sense, there are attempts to put up claims against Israel that are uh, uniquely.
0: Another un-created. claim is, of course, that Israel has created an island of control in Gaza. That uh, the blockade and other measures that Israel has taken against the Palestinian people, the Gazans or the Palestinian people in general in the West Bank makes this a retaliation, meaning the Hamas offensive on October 7th is also legitimate. These are many, many, many in the world are claiming this.
2: Uh, so we have to, one has to decide where to start, okay, the the issue. One can start with 19 or 21 or 1948, 1967, somewhere we we have to to start. I think the basic, uh, with regards to the attacks of the Hamas of Israel legally, and if I would look at it um, from the point of view of the uh, terms of the international law, it's an easy case, not so much because of the issues you are raising, I'll, I'll, I'll refer to it a bit later, but because Hamas declares clearly, upfront, it has genocidal intentions, it wants to destroy the entire state of Israel. So, you know, facing this claim, certainly Israel has the right of self-defense, and it, Keeps on saying, you know, we will attack again and again. So, you know, what can you do now? But I'll go back to your question because it does raise certain certain issues, especially with regards to the issue of whether Israel is still the occupying power in the Gaza Strip. I think this is the crux of the, of the issue because there are claims in international law. It's it's a debated issue, contr- very controversial that uh, peoples under foreign occupation have a right to use force in order to free themselves from the foreign occupation. So this is the claim that's been made. Israel rejects this claim on principle. Israel does not think, and also the United States does not think, that there is a right to use force. But I understand that there is such a claim in in international law. Um, But once again, the idea that the Gaza Strip is still under occupation without Israeli soldiers on the ground in the Gaza Strip prior to October 7th is something that was created for Israel. There is no other case in the history of occupation. There are close to 30 military occupations since the 1930s century. In no other case has there been a claim in international law that there is an occupation without boots on the ground. This was created in order to describe the measures that Israel took, and it took it because the Hamas was was there. Uh, Looking back, it was certainly justified, the measures that Israel took. There is no other case in which it was defined as occupation, resulting in saying, okay, so we have a right to uh, defend ourselves against a foreign occupation. Uh, So, um, it's a problematic uh, claim, I think. And uh, certainly, even if there is a right, this right is limited to by the laws of war and if there is a party which uses force in a way which is certainly as we said in the beginning consists of crimes against humanity war crimes even genocide then a state has to respond to this to this claim so even if there is a right some kind of right to use force, and certainly the attacked party has a right to, se- to, to for self-defense against this right. And certainly, if war crimes are being made, the right of self-defense even stronger.
0: Okay, you uh, mentioned earlier about the idea that commanders can be brought to trial under international law for not protecting citizens enough, civilians enough. So how does that work when the party we would like to prosecute is not a state, when it's a terrorist organization? How can they be tried in the court of law? So
2: with regards to the Hamas operative, there is a major question in Israel. So Israel has, I think, approximately 700 terrorists that were caught and the number is growing because not all people are also arrested now at the, at the Gaza Strip. I think mainly for intelligence. You know, the people are arrested, but then they are under Israeli control. So more than 700. Um, will Israel, Israel will indict these persons. It's a very difficult question how. Uh, I don't know if we want to go in detail into this question, but the gathering of evidence in the first days, uh, understandably, because it was done under fire. You know, the corpses were were gathered from the fields sometimes and from burnt kibbutzim. Terrible uh, uh, situation, but they weren't gathered with the idea of thinking about criminal trials in the head of the... They they were thinking about bringing them to burial, right? Not gathering evidence. So so, how will this... Um, and, and it's also a mass trial, you know? So how will this trial not turn into a political trial? How will we preserve the idea of the law, or criminal law, as reflecting justice and not as reflecting politics?
0: Or revenge.
2: A, or revenge, right? So... Uh, uh, Justice Jackson, when he was a prosecutor at the Nuremberg trial, he, he started. He said, "Stay the hand of vengeance." Right? We're putting these people on trial. We're not killing them, as Stalin suggested and Churchill perhaps supported. Uh, so, um, w- w- so, so. In this event, I think that there is also another actor here who would won't say like, but who would be interested in prosecuting, and it's the International Criminal Court. And the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, Karim Khan, was in the area twice, actually, one in the uh, Egyptian side of, of the Gaza Strip, and uh, he just visited Israel and issued a declaration in which he said, yes, certainly, it seems to uh, the International Criminal Court that Hamas committed trials that are worthy of... Being prosecuted, so perhaps this would be a solution if Israel will cooperate. And um,
1: it's
2: it's a far fetch uh, that Israel will cooperate here, but perhaps.
0: Um, if Israel doesn't cooperate, I as I understand it, there is death penalty on the books in Israel. It's only been used notoriously once. But do you see that as a possibility for these 700 who have been uh, taken? I will, I, I'm
2: will. pushing back against your question, with your permission, because I believe that discussing the death penalty when people are, kidnapped people are still in Gaza, is a dangerous issue. Because the response of the Hamas to this discussion will certainly be, we also have your people. So with your permission, I'm pushing back against this discussion of the of the death penalty.
0: Permission granted. And obviously taking hostages is a huge criminal offense in the international court. But again, this court doesn't necessarily have any teeth. What could it actually do? The
2: International Criminal Court is an institution that is supposed so it, it it should act. It doesn't live up to what people planned, but it should act in two ways. Towards non-state actors, it should reflect the response of the entire international community to the most vicious attacks at uh, the crimes against humanity. Not, not only non-state states, but uh, the... Um, Historical experience is that it puts his, its hand mostly on on operative of non-state actors, uh, not not on, but sometimes it also has um, uh, people who acted within states in in certain offences. Um, towards states and especially uh, democratic states, the effect of the International Criminal Court is a completely different one. It's a way push a state to conduct its own investigation. Because the basic principle of the International Criminal Court is the principle of complementarity. The principle of complementarity is that the court will only intervene if the state does not uh, conduct the investigations uh, properly, is unwilling and unable to, to investigate. If a state like Israel investigates correctly, And as I said, there is a system of investigation. We have the high court overseeing the system of of investigation. Then the International Criminal Court will not intervene. By definition, it's part of its mission to cause democracies to have their own internal investigations. I'm not saying that Israel would not have investigated without it, but speaking generally. So the idea is not necessarily to put on trial. The idea is to push states uh, towards investigation. Now, of course, there is an entire controversy whether this International Criminal Court even has jurisdiction over Israel. We'll need another session or two uh, or <laughs> to, to, to discuss this issue. We won't go into it. It's, it's, it's very, very controversial, but still... The, the court, the, at least the prosecutor of the court, thinks he has jurisdiction. But when he speaks about Israel, he mainly speaks about the internal investigations that Israel will conduct by itself. Then the court will not have to intervene.
0: Amichai, I just want to ask you as we close: A, do you personally, with all your breadth of knowledge, feel that the IDF is acting ethically right now in the Gaza Strip? Uh,
2: first. There was no campaign in human history in which there were no violations of ethics and law, as I said. Probably, possibly, there are deviations also. Second, when you take into account the opening move of this campaign, the atrocities that were committed by Hamas, Israel is acting far better... Than could have been expected of any country compared to any response, and take into account the fact that Israel is not fighting in Afghanistan or Iraq, you know, for the US. Israel is fighting several kilometers from uh, from here. You know, my son just last week came home for the first time since the beginning since October 7th and he went he came home for a night and went immediately back it's close it's here it's not you know in a different in a different country and when thinking about it this way I think without you know knowing every specific case um, I think uh, Israel is behaving uh, Definitely, within comparing to what other nations have done. Definitely, within the realm of of international law.
0: Amichai, thank you so much for joining me.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
0: And community, thank you for joining me as well. I really appreciate your support, as do we all here at the Times of Israel. Please join us again in another couple of weeks for another fascinating webinar. Thank you very much and good night. In his work, Covenant and Conversation, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs states, In the human domain, there is a fundamental difference between justice and revenge. Revenge is personal, justice impersonal. Revenge involves taking the law into your own hands. Justice is the opposite. The move from revenge to justice is the most fundamental any society can make. When courts and the legal process take the place of retaliation, it is no longer the Montagues against the Capulets, but both under the impartial rule of law. Justice is not revenge, it is the only sane alternative to it. This podcast was produced and edited by The Podwaves. Have a comment about this or other episodes of What Matters Now? Email us at podcast timesofisrael.com. Look for more What Matters Now episodes and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Until next week, shalom.